Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We caught up earlier today with Mark Henderson. He is the CEO of Laramide Resources, ASX listed Uranium Junior uh, assets in uh, US and also Australia. Um, really frank conversation with him about the state of play, supply demand, what they're doing at their assets, uh, how much money they're spending and their plans for this year. Um, always enjoy speaking to Mark. I think you might enjoy listening to it. So if you want our thoughts and opinions on the conversation, you can find that at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. Uh, we can also find detailed company reports and analysis. It's commentary from experts from around the world on a variety of commodities, including our weekly Uranium show, been running now for 50 weeks. Um, there are training courses on there to help you with your diligence. Uh, there are summaries of interviews that we've done to save you some time because you've told us that you're busy. And not like that, though. And uh, if you want to join a thriving community of investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other, um, do join them at cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. I think you might like it. Mark, how are you doing, sir? Very good, Matt. How are you? Not good too to bad. You. Yeah, good to see you. Uh, nearly a year. April last year it was. I've been keeping. Uh, very well. It's been obviously an interesting and challenging year for in a lot of ways, but we're still here. So that's the number one thing. Where, where, Keith where, Richards says, nice to be here. Nice to be anywhere. Exactly. Exactly. So where in the world are you hiding out? I am in or near Sarasota, Florida. Okay. Fantastic. Not, not a bad part of the world. To yeah. be hanging out during the summer. So, it's what, a good place to avoid COVID, sort of Canadian overkill on the situation. It's much different. It's much different here than it is in, in Canada, I have to tell you. In what way? In terms of on the ground. Just the attitude about where we are in this dilemma. Well, as in, because I, I, so I always get COVID updates from all around the world, right? So uh, I mentioned I got one from Jakarta this morning. But I'm always interested in the way that people on the ground treat it, because obviously your, your governor, as uh, so your senator, has got a very sort of strong views on how you guys should be dealing with it. Well, there were more like in the UK, where the UK is now. I know because I have, I have uh, kids who live in the UK. And so that we're dealing with that lockdown and the quarantines and all that kind of thing. I mean, I think there's here, there's more of a personal responsibility attitude here and, and, and they really never closed anything down, but there's a misperception around everything. Everything's a Yahoo. I mean, you come down here and people up in Canada would say, Oh, no one's wearing masks and everything else. Everyone's wearing masks in the settings where you'd expect them to wear masks. And, you know, to me, the numbers, if you look at all the charts, they're tracking pretty much everywhere globally on whatever wave we're in now. It's just so the attitude. So the attitude is much more A, can do. Let's get on with it. And B, you can see sort of in real time the effect of, of how this economy can come ripping back when they allow it to. I mean, you know, in terms of traffic and can you get a hotel room anywhere? Or the restaurants are full. Like this isn't going to be whatever they were telling you at the Federal Reserve about how long it's going to take to create inflation. I'm, I'm taking the, uh, the over on that, that it's going to be pretty quickly. You know, which is good for real assets. I mean, we were, you know, we obviously have a company that's a reflation potential asset, commodity type asset. You've seen them all go up. So yeah, no, it's an interesting firsthand observation around around things. I don't know what it's like in the other states in America. And I don't speak for this one, but yeah, I know it's not like that. I know it's not like that in uh, in Toronto now. Yeah, it's it's, it's interesting times to see, see as we're kind of. Do you know what? I'm gonna stay away from the COVID conversation. What do yes. I know? What do I know? But that's interesting. Uh, thank you for that. Um, 
we are here to talk about you, Laramie. Okay, so why don't we uh, kick off first of all that you know obligatory one minute overview, and then I'll pick it up with some questions. Yeah, so no, well, we've obviously got the same suite of projects that we think are are an important part of the future supply piece. You know, we think they're in the the first tier. Uh, you know, U- U.S. and Australia. Um, they're ticking along a little bit closer to, to, to where they'll be kind of shovel ready and ready to go when we get a market. What hasn't advanced since the last time we talked, and I was pretty enthousi- enthusiastic when, I, when we were there in April because I could see the, the market was telling you more, the, more of the spot market was telling you that maybe this, the turn is here. And then that sort of rallied up and went through the 30s. And now here we are at 27. But the, the equities now are really telling you that this is for real. And the number of people climbing on board now and the, and the, and the sort of people climbing on board, you know, the Bill Gates and some of that thing you're seeing, some of that thing with the ESG crowd sort of saying, well, maybe nuclear is going to be okay. Maybe we should think about it some more. All that kind of stuff has happened in the last year. I mean, the equities have obviously, I think, across the board have probably done better. But at $27, no one's building a uranium mine. I mean, Cameco's got Cigar Lake closed, and it's obviously partly closed because of the the pandemic situation. But you know, it's it tightens the market and the market needs to get tighter before, you know, you can bring on supply, especially chunky supply. Like that's the thing people also need there in that space need to realize is Saskatchewan stuff is chunky supply. So it doesn't come on about a million pounds at a time. <clears throat> but our stuff is in good shape. We're getting permits. We plan to do, last year was challenging in terms of getting work done. We, we've got a big work program planned this year in Australia, particularly in the Northern Territory, which will be exciting. It'll be the first time that thing's been drilled. Uh, but certainly by us. And uh, we should be got on the ground in New Mexico as well, which whereas last year was very challenging to get permits, very challenging to get government um, responsiveness on routine things. I don't know, can't speak for what it's like in other jurisdictions, but certainly, I mean, if you follow what's happening in Australia, obviously that was a country that was um, incredibly careful around around people moving around, certainly allowing people even into the country. I certainly can't go there. I couldn't go there. I can't remember if I could go there the last time I talked to you. I still can't go there. I couldn't just pick up the phone and call the airline and fly in for any reason, really. And so, you know, that's, we're still, there's still, there's still some headwinds about getting work done on the ground. Yeah, it's interesting. And I do want to talk to you about the kind of global narrative, the macro narrative, but I was interested in the way that you kind of framed it when you first mentioned your, your projects. You said, oh, they're in the same place. And I'm, I wonder if that's a kind of clue, and the intonation too is, I don't wonder if that's a clue as to how you're approaching this. I mean, some companies come and, t- and talk to us about how much work they're doing and it's, it's, it's all going to be great. How are you tackling um, your projects, your two main projects? Well, we've, we've got the, we've got two major projects. Both have each have 50 million plus pounds. So they're big, chunky projects that are going to run for 10 years or more at, at scale, interesting enough to be interesting, certainly to the market and also interesting to the utilities. You know, one in the US, ultimately, probably what we know now talk could be 3 million pounds a year. The other in Australia could be five. And so, you know, they have to be brought into the market relatively carefully, but the one that's a million can come in a million pounds a year with relatively low capex and opex to start. So we we obviously want to focus on that because that gives you a bit of flexibility. It's a bit like a you know they talk about shale how they can flex it up and down. ISR is a bit like that. That's kind of the flex in the system to the extent there is flex in the system. And I suppose if you you know if the Kazakhs operated that way where they flexed up and down on various projects, they have that ability to do that as opposed to. The, the project in Australia, which is a big open pit mine, you obviously have to build it, 
you know, once you get disability on building it, it's, it's going to hit the market at a certain period of time. And we've got permit challenges and political challenges and all that around that, around that as well. But I mean, the number one thing is that until you really see the price signal up and sustainable, I would think at least at, I said 40 before, probably really $45, it's hard to get moving aggressively in terms of let's raise tens of millions of dollars, put the team together, talk about getting contracts in place for, for actually building anything because it's just, you can't, you can't, there's no way, there's no way to, you can't produce uranium. It, nobody can, I don't believe at 27 other than Cameco's and Kazakhstan's projects that are, that are uh, depreciated already effectively or some to somewhat depreciated. Okay. But look, I, I don't want to talk what, what, about what could be, what I'm interested in is your attitude over the last year, right? Obviously COVID's kind of restricted your ability to travel, get to, you know, feet on the ground, as it were, but your attitude towards money and spending money on projects which at these prices don't work and in this environment seems kind of pointless. No, 100%. So we weren't going to, I mean, we weren't going to go out and do a lot of, I mean, now the market, the market conditions, capital markets have gotten a lot healthier where we could have been raising money for the last four months, you know, at all. And we've been bid every, you know, week. You know, we just do something at 25 cents, 35 cents. No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to make no sense. It's basically, you know, dilutionary to NAV. I mean, I think people that run these companies need to run them on a NAV per share basis, not NAV. You know, too many of the companies in the resource space are basically run on NAV and no one cares too much about their shareholders because most, for the most part, most people aren't big shareholders in these companies. I mean, I'm a big shareholder in the company, so I'm 10% shareholder. And I also saw the last cycle and I know how powerful this is once it gets started. And I also know we're one of a very few um, companies that have development assets that are plausibly going to be part of the future production, you know, in uranium. And so this isn't a 50% upside, 100% upside. This is 2x, 5x, 10x. And I think the kind of shareholders I want to attract are those shareholders. And, you know, I think we've our register right now is slowly but surely we just keep adding more of those shareholders because it's been such a long time. And the thesis in this uranium space is such a slow build thing to get to this moment, you know, that you know, I'm pretty comfortable that of how it's going to unfold because I've seen it happen before. But it's, but it's interesting to me because you've seen a bunch of uranium companies take the opportunity to go and raise some capital, right? Because they've seen two, three times growth in their, in their share price uh, through, I guess, a sort of surge of interest from generalist retail investors. It's kind of like this whole kind of like, you know, game GameStop mentality. It's like people have heard a story, don't quite understand many, don't understand a lot of the moving parts. Uh, but momentum has, has driven them in here. So money's just got cheaper for those guys. And you're saying you're still uncomfortable to raise money in that, in that environment. Because, I mean, you, you, you were like 28 cents when we spoke, I think, back in April, 38 cents now. So you haven't kind of seen a massive growth spurt there. Is, do you, so do you think your strategy of not over-promoting this has, has worked? Or do you think you will, you're playing the long-term game? I think it will I think it will work ultimately. I do confess that we have lagged some of the peer groups. So that's the pressure you get. So what you're referring to earlier about, because there's a mindset of take the money. And the other thing is once you take the money, there's pressure about, well, what's the news flow? Well, if the news flow is you just drilled a bunch more holes and added pounds when you already had a project that didn't need any more pounds, I sort of don't get it. But for whatever reason, the market, whether it's the algos that need to feed off it or whatever for the market trades now, there's an element of, of that, that that goes on. The other thing that we 
got a bit unlucky is we we knew about this URA rebalance, which people in this, you know, it's kind of inside baseball for these uranium people are following uranium. But, you know, we were they were a 10 percent shareholder of ours in the in URA before. And so, you know, when they when they decided that they were scared about being in uranium had to get into something else. This wasn't that long ago. I'm thinking two, two years ago, maybe three years ago. They kicked all the juniors out. We sort of arranged to find buyers for their 10%. And then lo and behold, the space is getting hot. They see fund flows. They're putting all these people back in the in the space. And we would have made the, then they announced how they were going to do it. We would have made the cut, but for, believe it or not, the, the market cap thing, which is the free float. And because I own too much stock, I wasn't counted in the free float and we didn't get in URA, but that would have added, I mean, tens of millions of share, 10 million shares, at, and they have to add it all at once. So everybody kind of got a pop off that. So some of these names have had a bit of an artificial pop off that rebalance in that single ETF. And, and we've been in the ETF before. So it's kind of a one shot thing. Once you're in, you're in. It's great. Flows are coming in, but it works both ways. When they were flowing out, it wasn't so fun <clears throat> in a down market. And so I get to just get the feeling that because of the nature of the asset, eventually, if you get too disconnected, from your peer group in terms of value, wherever you want to have that metric, the market has a way of catching up. It's not necessarily efficient overnight, but I'm not worried about it because when we do come to raise capital, by the time we're ready, we'll be within some kind of range of what we consider acceptable as far as raising money. The other thing for Thomas, or sorry, Matt, is about raising um, money is we have a, a, because of the finance we've done in the past, we have enormous amount of warrant overhang. We're sort of trying to burn off the warrant overhang because it's out there one way or the other. Yeah. So, so well, t- tell me about that. that is a question I want to get. Let's deal with it now. So are you going to be able to burn it off? Well, we think so. The first warrants start coming off in two, three months. Yeah. And they're right around where they where the stock is now. There's so And they're, they're virtually all either at the money or in the money. Some of them can be squeezed. And if they don't, well, the beautiful thing is if they don't burn off, then there's no overhang. And then there's less dilution, less nap per share. Uh, impact, right? So the sa- the money's the same. The, all the money's fungible. So like, this particular money being offered by one individual right now, and they always tell you we have the greatest shareholders, but they always want a warrant. <laughs> These fantastic shareholders always want a warrant. Yeah. So it, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting the choices you CEO need need to make, and you know I'm I'm encouraged when companies can do deals without warrants. Because it says mm. something very positive, and when they do raise money, that they're not doing it at a, at a significant discount to where they are today, for sure. So, do you think you've got the right types of shareholders in there now? Because you're going to have to have to take a slightly longer view. You, you, everyone talks the long game, the macro, supply, demand, fundamentals. Everyone talks that game, but the reality is that the people coming in there also want the ability for short-term gain should they choose at their election. So, it's a very different type of mentality. So, have you got the right type of shareholders? Oh, no, I think we do. And, and the thing that gives me sort of the sort of thing that gives me confidence is because I've seen the market before. I, I think we can all agree. And I can't imagine you've had any guests on whether they're CEOs or people that are experts in the space that think this supply demand situation is going to be resolved by anything other than the price going up. No one is coming on and saying, no, no, the price is going to be $15. You should raise money now. And so I'm pretty comfortable that the tide is coming in. And it's a it's a serious tide that's coming in. And so I'm pretty comfortable that we'll be able to get money at some level. And it's I don't think it's that wild of a bet to think it's going to be at a better level than now. No, 
I don't think it is. Yeah. So, get, so let's let's talk about your view of, of timing because you know again there's a lot going to be a lot of generalists watching this too, right? Perhaps I'm not paying necessary attention to some of the moving parts or variables, the players. So you mentioned the Kamikos and Kazalton proms, you know, going offline. That's, you know, affecting the, the supply side of the story significantly. We've had all of the kind of American fun and games with T32 and RSAs and new governments and so forth. All of those moments which didn't make a damn bit of difference. And even you thought last year was the year, right? I think it was the year, but I think, I mean, I can't roll back to say, but if I, if, if I recall, and this is my attitude, I can't imagine I really changed my mind too much. No, those, those political developments are important and potentially sort of upside catalysts, upside catalysts, but they're, they're sort of asymmetric that eh, it might not happen. And if it does, it's very good, but you can't invest a whole lot of time and energy into them because by and large, it tends to be a lot of noise and there's a lot of go- things governments say they're going to do. There's no follow through the policy, watching the policy, as you can imagine, um, getting discussed and made is, is, you know, something to best avoided for small children and that kind of thing. I mean, we're members of the UPA, which you know, ran producers. So we had a front row seat and all that. Obviously, there's a lot of lobbying going on. You can you can go to Congress and meet all the folks that are voting on the thing on the, you know, in the committees and things like that. Um and no, I, I, I think I said it would have been a nice situation. And I, and I applauded Mark Chalmers for doing what he did on 232. And 232 did ultimately really end up in the uranium reserve, which, of course, here we sit today, a year later. And yeah, that could be great. But what is it exactly? What are the, what are the implementation protocols and stuff like that? So, yes, being in that, it's, it impacts us potentially. And so I'm rooting for it, but I'm not hanging my hat on it. It's, it's well. It's interesting actually. I was talking to Mark Chalmers earlier this week, and uh, you know the numbers turned out to be seventy-five proposed number, seventy-five million bucks. Right? Not a whole hill of beans in the context of how many hands are being put out trying to grab some dollars. So it, it feels like that perhaps was a you know a fruitless exercise and a pointless exercise. Do you when you look back, do you think? Maybe we just shouldn't have done that, or do you think it's actually? No, I wouldn't agree. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree with that, man. I'll tell you why. Just partly because, if nothing else, that that certainly elevated the, the certainly the the critical supply situation, and now people are looking at it in a lot of other commodities. So I think that was the leader in the elevating that conversation for number one. I, we we still don't know what it's going to be. I mean, yeah, it's still disappointing at seventy five, maybe. But I mean, originally it was supposed to be one point five for ten years. It was supposed to go in and stay in. And, you know, again, it's more inside baseball with the way they have make legislation and exactly what the wording is and everything else and whether it's an appropriation that's a recurring one or whether they have to go back every year. And so I know I do think it was, I do think it was a very useful thing. And I think the things like what's coming out of it with Bill Gates and talking about nuclear and talking about the need to keep the nuclear plants open. So I think it um, improved the, you know, increase the level of conversation about nuclear and the role it fills in American energy generation in a fairly meaningful way. So I think it was, if nothing else, for that reason alone, it was definitely a worthwhile exercise. Okay. So and just to be clear, so I think maybe lost you a bit there. We were talking about 150 million bucks for 10 years. 1.5 billion was the number originally being mooted. Right. And a lot of equity players off the back of that were doing a heck of a lot of promoting to their shareholders and new shareholders about where they where they sat in the mix and the reality is obviously turned being worn out to be some somewhat 
different because no money's been allocated anywhere. So the last year has been about survival mode for a lot of people, right? And talking a good game. But the reality is not much has changed on the ground. No, I'd say very little has changed on the ground. I mean, really since almost since Fukushima, because you get in a bear market this bad. I mean, yeah, almost 10 years, but for, um, you know, a couple of outliers in Saskatchewan in terms of discoveries, and you have to applaud those people for looking when in the face of a bear market. Um, you know, what what really new projects are there you know, on the horizon? Um, and none of the other projects by and large got materially bigger during the 10 years of, and so there's obviously dilution against all that asset base. And so, yeah, I mean, you really do have to wait for the price signal. And it's, it, but it's an unusual market in that we did, the people that were in it that were going through it all along at moments in time, it it did look like oh, it really in 2017 it must turn because of this this that and that and mines are shutting off and it eventually it will it's I think it's surprising to everybody how long it has taken but I think people are going to be surprised how crazy it'll be on the other side of it because most markets shouldn't work this way I mean most people that are in industries that require um, critical materials in order to basically stay in business you would think would have a procurement strategy that wouldn't be the one that the utilities have in this business. It seems an odd strategy to me. And I guess they get away with it because the fuel cost as a portion of their business is such a tiny part of it. And they're all in it together. So if they all make a mistake, they, they don't all get fired. Like all, no, you know, all fund managers don't get fired in a bear market because they're all going down at the same rate together. It's kind of that mentality. And when it flips, it goes the other way. And they'll all pay $45 when they were paying 35 three weeks before. Yeah, it's, it's interesting psychology or behavioral psychology there. Yeah. But, but let, let's, let's just talk, talk about, we'll talk about where it's going in a second, but just, just stick on, on, the, on this, where we are today thing. So there have been some successes. I'm you know, thinking of the ISO energies, next gen, whatever you think of the way they're displaying the numbers, these are good discovery assets. And, um, but for a whole bunch of others, this is just being, nothing's changed on the ground. There's a big kind of promote uh, a newsletter audience, a newsletter type uh, marketing going on out there to, to just, I guess, like I say, survive. But do you think there's going to be, there's going to be a need for consolidation? Because at some point, you could, those stories are going to fall over because the fundamentals of the projects don't necessarily stack up. Um. Yeah, no, I'd forgotten about ISO. That was a very good, very good discovery. And that's obviously a very good, very, you know, excellent exploration, exploration group. Um, the problem with the M&A thing is there you only really, like, I really do think there's only really 20 names and all the projects kind of consolidated inside those 20 names. Remember, we had a crazy cycle where there were 700. And so you winnowed that down over time. And many of those companies went off and did other things, whether it's gold or marijuana or whatever the thematic of the day is at the moment. They're changing all the time now. AI, you know, but, and there, you see a few new ones creeping back, but the people that are creeping back, creating new companies, the people that knew where whatever assets that are left that weren't consolidated in all the other 20 names are, are, are. And, and so that's kind of what's happened. Um, the main reason I don't think there, and I get this question a lot about this M&A thing is, you know, in gold, there's a lot of buyers. There's a lot of natural buyers. You can create a mid-tier, you get benefit to do that. You know, you got guys that are producing and near producing, which makes sense. You know, you marry the present and the future. Um, the problem with the, the uranium space is a lot of us look like us. We got development projects and we have two. Which one goes first? You put 
another two from another company in there. Now you got four. How does that really help you? So show me the synergy. So I think there's an element of that. You can see a little maybe in even putting ISR producers together. But again, there's very little operating synergy because the most of the cost is at the ge- geographical location. And, and the head office costs in these companies, frankly, shouldn't be that high, especially when they're not doing much. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to see it. And, and you don't have you know, you have Cameco and who else is a buyer really that has market cap, maybe energy fuels. Now they have market cap. So, but by and large, you don't have guys with big market cap in Kazakhstan. It's hard to see Kazakhstan going outside of Kazakhstan. I'm I'm not even sure they're allowed to. They're not. Yeah. They're not. Yeah. No, but I, I just, I just, I'm always interested in like the approach to the management team because the decisions you make are the, are, are, you know, drive the business business's ability to grow or not or create value or not right so if i look at it, like a bill sheriff what he did in the last cycle he just put together a whole bunch of of assets bundled them up sold 1.8 billion bucks not one of those assets ever got into production right but there's nothing wrong with it. i'm not criticizing i'm saying that's a model there's a stack of money mm-hmm. made for shareholders yeah but the fundamentals just weren't there. And you know, I see him starting to do the same sort of play at the moment. And we, we wonder if he is, because you know, he's rolling up ISR projects, got you know Paul Gordonson on board, very cre- credible and capable individual on the ISR front. And you know, it looks like that's kind of you know a, a cookie cutter step and repeat process for, for them. And again, market-wise, fine. But utility buyers are looking to form relationships with companies that can get into production. There's some certainty around being able to deliver yellow cake in a can for, for them. And I'm you know, and there's not that many players that seem to be focused on that game, right? Because you've got a whole bunch of explorers doing their thing. And that's great for discovery and great for headlines. You've got people sort of rolling up assets, or some people rolling up assets currently. Again, great for headlines. But this supply demand dynamic is not changing. As you say, there's a massive deficit coming down the line. And the industry is going to need people who can actually genuinely produce. And shouldn't do you feel that investors should be looking at companies like that? Or just is it part of the mix? Is it's okay, there's a market game, and then there's the reality of actually producing uh, yellow cake. Do you know what I mean? There seems to be different ways you can yes, invest. Yes, you know, I know what you're saying. I mean, you can't, you can't fault the people that are building an asset strategy and they just want to trade around the assets. Part I of mean, the game. You, you put a pile of pounds in, in a warehouse and create a security around it. I mean, we have two of those now. So, so you can't fault people for doing that. And that's actually been a very useful vehicle to have for the construction of our market, to be honest, in terms of, you know, and we could talk about that with what yellow cake just did and everything else. So, you know, that's a strategy. If you ask about, with the development companies, I mean, typically it's, it's, what are you going to do? Are you going to, are you going to build or sell? Right. And, and like I said, in gold, that's a very clear choice. And you really have a lot of choices there probably. And probably they lean more to selling because there's so many more people to sell to. In, in uranium, I think you have to be more, is it, are you going to build or are you going to get together with another group that's a capable group where you've got some complementary assets that make sense. You've got plausible management folks, like you mentioned, folks like Paul, um, that obviously have experience and you know if they're in the team, their thing is going to get built. Um, yeah, so that's definitely a strategy. And that's certainly what I look at it. Yes, that's one of our opportunities, obviously. And there's a couple of obviously MA things that could be potentially interesting in terms of making a bigger and better company. But it's also you don't do it at the bottom of the market. Yeah. Well, but so everything's relative, isn't it? Well, yeah, but you 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 you, you know you're trading your you're trading for someone else's 
assets. And so it's always, it always does matter what you feel about your assets versus what you're trading for, because, you know, you don't, you, you don't want to trade for a boat anchor or a company that's got a couple of boat anchors on, the, on board, you know, because they're going to weigh you down. And if you're, if you're, if they're acquiring you, if they're acquiring you to backfill their market cap, that's probably not good for your shareholders. And those, you know, those things in business happen all the time. The acquirer companies, the roll-up companies, that's what they have to do. They have to keep, it's, it's like, like roll up or die, right? I mean, you know, you've seen it in lots of different industries. You can't really do that in uranium. There's not enough stuff to roll up for starters. It's kind of interesting to me. If, if, I'm, a, if I'm an equities bar, I, I, I would think, but who knows how they think? Who knows how they think? But I would h- hope that they'd be looking at the market and going, who can genuinely produce here? Because as an investor, in a very meaningful way, I don't care if the company's going to get into production as long as they're driving the share price, because that's how I make my money, right? But if I'm an, uh, if an industry insider looking at where are the actual pounds coming from, it's a very worrying landscape at the moment because don't you know it seems like the the spot price or term contracts will need to be signed at. 65, 70 bucks for any of these things to have any chance of economic success and there, or incentive, quite frankly, to get into production. Yeah, well, I don't know. Prices, price aside, I think you do have to look, look at the assets and say, are these assets that are commercial at a level? Because it, when the right conditions develop, the market has a way of making sure that that company will get sold to a company that has the ability to do it if you care about the talent. But I would always invest in the asset first before I'd worry about having a team. Because, I mean, the uranium business is a perfect example of that. If you had the world's greatest team for the last 10 years, you produced absolutely zero pounds. Yeah. Well, I think John Borshoff would he would say say that the, the, the talent is leaving the sector as well. Um, and that's another conversation for another day. That's a problem. No, that's and that is a problem. That that's another reason why you may have combinations of companies because there's a limited pool of ability of people to actually get things done. I mean, you know, and Ranger. I mean, take Australia for example. I mean, they don't have very many producing mines. Ranger is now really closing. I mean, and and they're not only closing the open pit; they they sealed up the added the decline. So that's a thing where I I don't think they were kidding. Or at least they're, that's not something that's if they wanted 65 tomorrow, because that's people forget about that resource. I mean, that's a big resource that's already drilled out and everything else that could come back in. And there's a plant there and what have you. But, you know, sealing the, sealing the decline is a pretty significant signal that you're not doing anything anytime soon. It's, I mean, t- I talked about, you said you'd talk about uh, yellow cake. We'll come back to yellow cake. You know, obviously, they've taken up their option with Kazakhstan on that you know, mm. 100 million, I think, pounds, as in pounds sterling. Um, option at, to buy at like quite it's sub sub thirty type level. Uh, we surprised it took that long for them to kind of get their act together. Did it need that bump in the market for them to help them make that decision? Well, that I mean that's the way this dynamic worked the last few times. And they weren't there the last time. We just had you you know we had UPC and UPC would go to a yeah five ten percent now premium. They they would go and they would um, raise the money and then they would go into the market. I mean, it still helped their overall situation. They, the the LK contract apparently is pretty interesting in that they can actually secure the price before they have to commit to getting the capital so the investors really know what, what they're getting. I have my own little um, take on on how that's good for the market, though, because it's strange that Kazakhstan, because these are three million pounds coming out of Kazakhstan that when you think about it, well, I mean, why are they doing it? Otherwise, they would be in the market anyway. So it makes no sense. So I'm thinking that 
the, the two duopolists, Cameco and Kaz Adamprom, who both have taken operations down and production down and have both said we want to be in the spot market, they can't really be seen marking up the spot market $3 a week. And so this is a very good way for them backdoor to have someone else do it and, and have no fingerprints on it in a way and get this move up because it's almost like these utility managers are, are like kids on, on you know, their first bike with training wheels and they got to get the training wheels off and let's get this market to 40 bucks because if they don't do that, there's going to be no uranium in the future. So I don't know how, I, I just don't know how we get resolved and the spot market moves to 40, $45. It clearly has to get there somehow. And there seems to be zero urgency on the part of the people that actually need it. And then they need it in the not too distant future to, to sort of get on with it. Well, with, with, yeah, with, I guess, uh, two, two and a half years worth of inventory, maybe they think, they think they've got a bit of, bit of time and, you know. But then what? And, yeah, <laughs> I, I know, I know. And then what? Because uh, mines take a long time to get in, in, into production, not just the you know, people, companies in care and maintenance at the moment, but I'm talking about new, new mines. Uh, former producers need, need to ramp this up, but they need to be incentivized. I, I, get, I get all of that. Um, it, it, it's, it, but it's fascinating times, right? I, I think it's definitely fascinating times. But I, we all bind a thesis that, that the macro says there's going to be an uptick. And at this rate, that the, the hockey stick shape or the curve is, is turning hockey stick shape relatively um, imminently, I, I suspect. Well, let, let's see where that ends up because none of us have called it right so far. Um, you continue buying. Right? Why? Sheep. That's it. What else is, I got about, you know, I got some things dedicated to parts of the portfolio that aren't 10x. So if I have some 5x, 10x money, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's a pretty good, you know, I kind of want to, I kind of want to keep my ownership around 10%. Right. Why? I don't know. It's, it's a nice number. signal to the shareholders that you're committed. Easy math. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll go with the easy math. I like that. Um, right. And so, and I want to be clear. So no imminent financing for you. Pointless. Is that, is that your attitude? I didn't say it was pointless. I think we've we've met done previous financings where the following financings are baked in the cake called warrants. Those warrants are if they don't get exercised, they're big overhang because they hold the market back. And so I think that's I want to wait and see what happens with that. And we have a whole lot of those that burn off by January of next year. Um, you know, if the market were suddenly a lot closer to the peer group, I mean, maybe. But again, if we had the money and we took 10 million, the 10 million would just sit in the bank. It's not like there's an imminent urge for us to do a whole lot. And we probably wouldn't do a whole lot other than what was planned anyway. We also have, which people probably don't realize, we had one particular investment that, because we were in crypto, we started a company, we had this company, Con, right? That was also in uh, the Iranian business in Mongolia. That's a whole long side story about what happened there, but it ended up working out well and the company got paid out for having its asset um, taken from it. And then we turned it into a shell and that went into crypto and it, it's gone up six or seven or eight times. And so, and we had a big position. And so, yeah, we get by on that for a while. And that's still, we've still got a lot of value, a couple of million bucks of value there probably. And so there, there are other things. So the people thinking, oh, they must finance. There's all, that's sort of the, the people on the, on the other side of the table, they, they sort of wait for people that they think are desperate to finance and games get played and, and there's this this the illusion of overhang, and you must rip off the band-aid and suddenly 
the beach ball comes flying out of the water. But that's not really the case for us. They, they, they don't believe you when you tell them that. And then you tell it, tell them it repeatedly and they still don't believe it. And so finally they sort of, it just goes up anyway. And then, and then you finance, right? So, I mean, most companies that are clever about financing. They're typically not telegraphing what they're going to do anyway. Yeah. Oh no, we've had that. I've, I've asked people point blank and they've said no. And the next day they've done one, literally the next day. Um, right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> could it just take me over the wolf just for this conversation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so let's, let's talk about some of the, the, the assets here. Okay. Um, in the US, I think last time we talked, we talked about tolling and there were going kind to of conversations needing to happen um, around tolling. So have you advanced conversations with other parties? I, I get that you're doing the, the, what you had planned and the, the, the minimum um, sort of amount on the projects, but are you having conversations with other people? It's not, not in the context of, Consolidation, etc., but r- relationships around tolling, around toll toll milling. Mm. No, I mean the the one project we have that's really below the radar. We don't even talk about it. Is LaSalle in Utah? It's permitted. That can go into Energy Fuels as mill. I've you know I've had some conversations with with Mark Chalmers over the last year, but frankly, really not about that because I I just know at twenty seven dollars he's not turning the mill on. In fact, he's he's do, he's really got this focus on rare earths because he's got a plant that's capable of producing there. And it's, it's certainly an area that looks like it could be, it could be quite attractive. So um, I do think at some point when the price gets up and there's clarity around exactly who can bid in or how this whole reserve thing is going to work, where the government's actually going to write you a check in some fashion, for what you produce. I, I think, think those discussions probably w- would, would start because that's the obvious place where that material needs to go is his plant. And it's, it's, we have a, we have, so we have a, or buddy that has no vanadium in it, so he can run that um, without running his vanadium circuit. Because there's some other things on the Colorado plateau that have a lot of vanadium in them, and they're, you know, that's that's the that's the beauty of that mill that he has. Is that's why he can produce rarers and other things. He can tweak the mill and and get some other things out the back end of it. And so, no, we haven't really had those conversations yet. Because again, the price is too low. That's an asset that needs at least fifty dollars before you're probably really serious about it. Yeah. I mean, the ISR stuff, it's too soon. We first just got to get our permits. and That's the goal there is just get shovel ready. Right. Okay. So, but you, yeah. you feel, you know, Mark, well enough for at the time when you have a oh, conversation, yeah, yeah. he's listening. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I know Mark very well and I knew his predecessor, Steve, well. We had a, we had an actual tolling billing contract from 2013, 14, when, you know, when we thought we were going to have we saw the light at the end of the tunnel and let's get ready. And so we have a toll milling contract basically done sitting around somewhere and ready to go. It just needs to be tweaked basically on how that would work. Now, not, not necessarily going to do that particular deal again. Depends on what he wants to do. He owns a mill, but he, but he, he I don't think he's going to start that mill until he sees um, enough longevity in the price and enough, um, uh, solidity behind the, 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 the who's buying and who where he can offtake the stuff to and everything else but that he will actually turn the mill on because he's not going to turn it on for six months. I think he wants to, when he turns it on this time for uranium, I think he probably wants to turn it on with a plan and leave it on. Yeah, no, it's interesting because we, we'd spoken to a bunch of CEOs here. So we're going, oh, yeah, no problem. It's definitely happening. We'll be tolling it at uh, White Mesa. And I sort of speak to Mark and he goes, never spoken to them. Don't know what you're talking about. So do you know what I mean? Bit, that's what I'm saying. It's right, no, 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 relationship. Right. That's why it's. No, I have a right. No, I have a mark. We were on. A, we were on a. The only other thing podcast I've done or anything in the last year is with him eating, 
he, he did something to talk about his, it was really more about the rare earth business and, and what yeah. have you. That was about two months ago, but I know him very well going back to Australia in 05. Yeah. 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 That's different from, I think some of the other CEOs perhaps yeah. are making claims that they can't uh, deliver on. Um, so on the so just to finish off, just want to understand where, where how you move the ISR projects forward because obviously it takes some planning, some testing. You, gotta, you know, we've seen what's happened with Peninsula recently. They've, they've kind of set back their ISR uh, project by six months because they're not getting they're not able to extract at the rates they thought they would be able to. It's a fairly low low, low grade um, project. So. It's low-grade uranium. Uh, he's a good guy, um, but there's, 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 it takes time. So, are you doing the things now that you think you need to be doing to kind of hit the floor running if the price does move sharply? Yeah, we're we're trying. We, we last year was frustrating because we 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 got so little responsiveness from governmental officials. You know, in order to get the permits we need to get on with. First, we wanted it. we need to do a drill program, and then there needs to be a technical program around restoration because we have to demonstrate restoration in the lab, in the, in the well field, in the aquifer to a level that they will give you the final permit. That's the one permit we need in New Mexico. But, you know, until you have all your permits, you don't have your permits. And so that requires some work to be done, some drilling to be done. We need access for that and what have you. So just getting the basics so you can go out and then, and then do the work has, has been a frustrating exercise in New Mexico. I do think, and it was COVID, you know, a lot of it really was COVID related. There were, there were towns there that were literally closed down where outsiders couldn't come into and what have you last year. <clears throat> and I think they're still pretty, they're still pretty concerned about it. So I think that'll be one of the last States in the U S where they um, are running around freely with saying, okay, COVID's in the rearview mirror, but I think we'll get it done this year for sure. And, and, and in our assets in Australia, we have, plans ongoing right now. Like there's meeting dates scheduled to get the permit in our hand to allow us to go out and do the work. So you'll see us on the ground in Australia, probably starting in the territory no later than probably around July. <clears throat> and that's exciting. So we do have a, we do have a big greenfield thing there because people, we talked about news flow. I'm not a big proponent of news flow for news flow's sake, but that's a big greenfield asset right next to our main brownfield asset. I mean, relatively speaking, same geological bell. And I think if we, we started hitting something interesting there, people would get excited. You know, we need, by the way, people has got to start doing greenfield exploration in this business again, because we will need the, ultimately need the, the new ore bodies. Brilliant. And, and just talk, talk to me about Australia, because obviously we've seen in Western, I know you're in the Northern Territories and, and, and Queen, over in Queensland, Northwest uh, Queensland. We've seen in uh, Western Australia, a sort of a Labour government which is, does not very pro-uranium. Not pro nuclear, not not pro any any of that, and that's gonna well, it's perhaps causing people difficulties around permits. What's the attitude in uh, Northern Territories and Queensland? Well, <clears throat> the territories is good. Territory is fine. They, I mean, they obviously had Ranger and you know their biggest producer. The, the we've been through the whole political cycle in Australia, so we understand it very well. So both it was actually Queensland and Western Australia were. At labor governments after they got rid of the federal objections to uranium, which are completely gone, and they're now they're now introducing the idea of nuclear energy into the conversation slowly, carefully in Australia, with the view that eventually maybe that would happen. <clears throat> and as far as mining uranium, they had this weird thing where you know it was okay to sell it to other people, but we're not going to do it ourselves in these two states. That's a that's a political calculation relative to their voter bases, and it still exists in Queensland. 
So we're hopeful that it went away at one point and came back and we're hopeful it'll go away again. Or the, the idea that nuclear is ESG friendly will just blow away all the opposition once and for all. That's the other thing. But what happened specifically with Western Australia is they had a labor government. It went out, I think, in 2009. Then they had two terms, so two times three years. So everybody got everything permitted in six years. In Queensland, we had one term, only three years. They didn't change it till halfway through. So we started down the track and then they flip-flopped again. And so everything's permanent in WA, but needs higher prices, potentially really much higher prices, like $60 would be my just personal opinion on what it probably needs at least. And, you know, Queensland needs to get the, the rid of the idea that you can't build a uranium mine first, which I think they will. But at the end of the day, the last cycle we traded with both the, the state level and the federal level saying you'll never mine uranium here and went to 700 million market cap. So it's really a discounting factor on we have this asset that clearly is an important asset. What discount factor you want to put on it? Right now, they're putting like a 95% discount factor on it. What will happen in a bull market is that that discount factor will just recede about the future. It's like about how many Teslas you're going to sell in the future. At the, at the peak, there's zero discount on it, right? It's all going to be Teslas. I don't think it's going to be quite like that in uranium, but there are no uranium companies, remember. So the concentration bet in the market flowing into the money this time around, because there are only 20 names, at least at the beginning, is going to be powerful. And because we, the 20 of us that are left know where all the assets are, we know there actually aren't that many. You're not going to suddenly see a uranium company every week like you can see a crypto company or a marijuana company, for example, that's there's something that's because there's probably nothing more ubiquitous than marijuana growing if you want to start marijuana growing, right? Like, I mean, it's very easy to create a plausible marijuana company. It's going to be harder, much harder this time to create a plausible uranium company. That's what concerns me. That's what concerns me. It really does. I, I think what, I, that, they'll be, that they'll be suddenly... Well, that, that there will There's suddenly be in the world that people... There'll be 500 uranium companies again and uh, about... Yeah. A, a, about 20 of them that will ever produce anything um, as per last cycle. Well, not it was it was less than that. I think we've got one new producer in the market last cycle, didn't we? Well, but we rely on folks like you to be sort of the honest arbiters of calling people out on, okay, would they come on your show? And I've got this great new story and it's a greenfield story. And because where did this come from? The last, let's see, the thing about the last cycle is the last cycle was so far after the previous cycle where a lot of things had been discovered and there was a lot of data. So that was the cycle where every brownfield thing moved into uh, visibility in a public company. You can't do that twice. And there are no other things lying around that people mostly don't know about. So, I mean, to their credit, the folks that did well this cycle, they went out and they found brand new things in Saskatchewan, right? I mean, those were targets that were known, but there was nothing, there were no discoveries there. And there aren't any big brownfield things lying around in companies or countries that most, for the most part, people don't know about. And so I think that is a bit of a governor on it because it's, and it's also, you know, we've been in the exploration business for a long time. And I would say the, the basic act of just going out and exploring and being able to put a drill hole somewhere from a regulatory standpoint around the world today, compared to 10 or 15 years ago, is much harder. You can't just start a company uh, uh, in January and you're drilling in April anymore. It just doesn't happen. So, yeah, let, 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 I, we, we've seen a lot of sort of new entrants, a lot of new. We've seen Australian companies picking up American assets and starting to talk the the public market. 
story. And it's, uh, you know, I think it's worrying because we, we already know those assets didn't work last time around. They're not going to work this time around. And I just feel that there's a lot of retail perhaps going to be persuaded that they need to part with their hard-earned dollars and give it to some guys who know this thing's not going anywhere. And I think that's, as you say, it's our job to maybe point to those things a bit more. But look, Mark, awesome. I love, always love talking to you, very frank, to yep. the point. Um, and I think a lot of people appreciate that. And we certainly do. So thank you for your time today. Stay in touch. Hope things do start yep. moving. And uh, you must come back on soon. I will do, Matt. Thanks. I always enjoy chatting. And thanks for the opportunity. And uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to CruxCast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.